Good to see all of you. Why don't you open your Bibles to Numbers 11. We had a wonderful two weeks of vacation. Glad to be back. We were able to go to the Ark and the Creation Museum. I went with my three oldest. Katie was here last week. Maybe you saw her with the, with the other kids. But uh, it was a long, um, special time with them, about a week away. And so if you're ever out to that area of the country, I would highly recommend visiting the Ark and the Creation Museum. You'll not be disappointed. They're both incredibly uh, well done. But glad to be back and see all of you. So go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The title of this morning's sermon is, God might give us what we want to our detriment. We're going to begin at verse 1 in Numbers 11. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them, the Israelites, and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again, and they said, and then notice this, oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, leeks, onions, and garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of, what what word is that? that, Does anyone know how to pronounce that? Because I don't. (laughs) What? Bedellium or delium? What is it, Eldon? I think it's delium. Okay. Eldon said it's delium, so we'll go with that. <laughs> the people went about and gathered it and ground it into hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes out of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Now skip to verse 18. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month of meat until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? You may be seated. Father, you have been so good to us to give us your word and to speak to us through it. I have been incredibly challenged by uh, the topic of this morning's sermon and, and that last sermon in Luke 15 when we, when we pressed to have things as the prodigal son did that you will even give to us. I, I pray, and I know it was some weeks ago because of Easter and Jeff preaching and then me being gone, that we did look at those verses in the beginning of the prodigal, uh, parable of the prodigal son. So allow that sermon to be fresh in our minds. I'd have preferred that it was last week, but be your sovereign Lord and can easily uh, remind people of what we studied, how the son came to his father and asked for his inheritance, and even to the son's own detriment, the father did give it to him. And I think this is such an important principle uh, about life on this side of heaven, that you have not made us into robots, Lord, that we are free moral agents and you allow us to have our will to our own detriment. Help us to learn from some of these examples that we started looking at in the last sermon and continue looking at this morning, uh, not just so that we would learn about this principle, but that hopefully we'd be convicted and desire to be receptive to your will for our lives. And that would be my request this morning on behalf of these people and myself included, that you would allow us to have a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit's leading to repent of any stubbornness in our lives or hard-heartedness and uh, be open to how you would speak to us and lead us. Challenge us this morning with these examples in, a next, uh, in the next sermon to c- conclude this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So Sunday mornings we've been working through Luke's gospel verse by verse. But as I prayed and as I mentioned in the, the uh, last sermon when we began the parable of the prodigal son, the son went to his father, and he asked his father for the inheritance. Let me refresh your, your memory here. You don't have to turn to Luke 15, but it says in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and he divided this property between them. And I thought that there was a lesson here that is so important, I wanted to camp on it for a couple weeks, and I really flesh it out, really elaborate on this principle so that we can strive to apply it in our lives. And so, as we talked about in our sermon on these verses, this son's request was incredibly what? Who remembers? It was incredibly what? Does anyone remember? Rude. 
yeah, disrespectful, outrageous. Uh, the listeners in Jesus' day would have expected the father, do you remember, to do what? Yeah, to slap him, to rebuke him, to remove him from the family, to announce that the son should be viewed as what? To the family. Dead. It was even customary that they would have a funeral, which is why toward the end of the parable, the father twice says, my son who was dead and is now alive. Uh, but uh, there's no way that he's going to respond positively to the son's request. Yet we read in verse 12, the father divided his property between them. And so really the only thing that is probably more outrageous than the son's request is the father's response. One commentator wrote, for a father to do this would cause, and by do this meaning give the inheritance to his son, would cause people to gasp rather than strike the son across the face for his insolence, the father grants him what he wants. There were those times when Jesus was teaching when you can imagine people are gasping or perhaps if they didn't like what he was saying, eye-rolling even, or groaning, because they would know that there was no way that this would actually happen, uh, happen, and this would be one of those situations. Jesus's listeners would never believe that a father would respond this way, a father who would know his son's heart and give his selfish, uh, immature, sinful, rebellious son his inheritance. And you don't have to live in Jesus's day to know that a reasonable father, if dealing with a selfish, immature, rebellious son, who's going to waste the money that's given to him uh, in, in frivolous or sinful ways, would then give that money to the son. No earthly father would do this, which begs the question, why the father in this parable did it? And what's the answer? The answer is that the father in this parable does not picture any earthly father. The father in this parable represents who? God the father. The father in the parable extends freedom that will be taken advantage of and used sinfully because who else extends freedom that can be taken advantage of and used sinfully? God the father does. The father in the parable gives the son what he wants, even to the son's own detriment because he represents God the father who might give us what we want to our own detriment. To make it very simple, the beginning of this parable, which I thought was so important we should unpack it for a couple weeks, represents God the Father giving the sinner the freedom to sin. Some people have this mistaken notion about God that if he doesn't want us doing something, then he's simply going to what? Stop us. He's going to prevent us. I've been in conversations in, in this office over here with individuals who have done things and claimed that they did it simply because, or that they walked through that door because God didn't close it, simply because they had the opportunity to do it, and because God is sovereign, it thereby must be His will that they do it. And that is just completely untrue. We're not robots. God has allowed us to be free moral agents who, who can choose rebellion and, and sin, with the free freedom that he has given us. <clears throat> I want to show you other examples of this in Scripture. In the last sermon, you might remember, we looked at Moses, and God made very clear what he desired for him to go back to Egypt to lead out his people. And does anyone remember how Moses responded? Did he say, yes, Lord? Did he respond like Isaiah in Isaiah 6? You know, send me. <laughs> just, just incredibly reluctantly, excuse after excuse after excuse, when none of them work, finally, outright rebellion, Moses just says, just send someone else, anyone but me. And wrongly, people teach that in a demonstration of God's graciousness or mercy, he says, go ahead and take your brother Aaron. That is judicial. That was to Moses's detriment that Aaron went with him, which you remember at the golden calf and when, men, when Aaron joined Miriam and in questioning Moses's authority. In this sermon, we're going to see two more examples. We'll read through the first few verses pretty quickly again. Verse 1, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and he was so angry, it says, the fire of the Lord, imagine this, 
burned among the Israelites and consumed or burned up some of the outlying parts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord. He interceded for them, and the fire died down. And so the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. We could have another sermon entirely just on God's view of complaining. Uh, He does not like it, and he definitely did not like the Israelites at this time complaining so soon after he had acted so powerfully on their behalf. What are some of the things up to this point that God has done for the Israelites that they should have remembered? It wasn't that long ago that he unleashed the plagues on Egypt. It was not that long ago that he had parted the Red Sea when the Egyptian army was pursuing them. They can still, whether, I don't know whether it's day or night, but if it's day, they could look up and see what? A pillar of fire. Or if it's daytime, the cloud that's protecting them from the hot sun. If it's nighttime, they can look up and see what? The fire that would be, that would be warming them in the evening. He gives them water from a rock, and he gives them bread that they can simply walk outside their tents and pick up off the ground. Yet here they are complaining. And so, To teach them a lesson, he unleashes this fire that burns through the outlying parts of the camp. Unfortunately, they did not learn the lesson that he had for them. Look at verse 4. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again. And they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic— But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So apparently the manna wasn't good enough for them. They want to meet. Two things to keep in mind. They're in the wilderness. They don't have farms. (laughs) They don't have vineyards that they've planted. What's my point in saying that? Food was going to be incredibly difficult to obtain. How thankful should they have felt about God providing food on the ground for them to walk out of their tents and pick up and eat? I mean, that's even easier than us driving to Walmart. So I can't really imagine that they would be complaining about this, but it was not good enough. And second, what does the manna serve as a picture or type of? The true and greater bread that came down from heaven, and so it's probably not much to say that in this typology of Christ, to complain about the manna is almost to complain about Christ. Considering that God just sent this fire through the camp that burned up some parts of it, what would you expect from God at this moment when they complain so soon after that previous judgment? I'll tell you what I would expect. I would expect more judgment. I would expect God to be even angrier now than he was at the beginning of the chapter, but instead, right here, it seems God chooses to look like the Father in Luke 15. We expect judgment, we expect the slap across the face, uh, rebuke to the rebellious son or sons or children of Israel. In this case, and instead, he looks like the Father who responds completely differently than we might expect Verse 18, say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it is better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. Now, this sounds good at first, doesn't it? It almost sounds good like when the father gave the son his inheritance. But did it go well for that son to receive his inheritance? No, it definitely did not. And I want you to notice in the following two verses that it is described, them receiving this meat, in an incredibly unpleasant way. Verse 19, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've rejected the Lord who's among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come up out of Egypt? So God's putting them on the keto diet, right? <laughs> they're, they're going from high carb, all bread, to all meat. And notice that God said that the meat would become what to them? Loathsome. What does that word mean? Despicable, basically. You loathe something or loathe someone, and it means that you hate it or you hate them. So they were going to begin to hate or despise 
this meat. And this brings us to lesson one. God might give us what we want, but later lesson one, we might not want it. They went from high carb to no carb, and they're going to begin to despise it. The Hebrew word for loathsome, it is zara, and this is the only place it occurs in Scripture, and it means nauseating. So the meat was going to become nauseating to them. In other words, what they previously wanted or craved, or you could even say lusted after, is going to become nauseating to them when they receive it. Can you see application for us in this before I spell it out? Can you imagine things that we would crave or lust after but then receive that would become nauseating to us or loathsome to us? They would hate the meat more than they hated the manna. So in verse 4, they said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. But what are they going to begin saying around maybe the 10th or 20th day? Oh, that we have to eat meat again. If you look in verse 6, they said, there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. What are they going to begin saying? Oh, but there is nothing at all but this meat to look at. God said they were going to eat it until it came out their nostrils. I'm not even sure I know exactly what that means. I don't know how. <laughs> have you, I've never eaten meat and have it, had it come out my nostrils before. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of people who have experienced that. But my suspicion is this is just God's way of sort of grotesquely describing what it will be like for them because they're not just going to have one, two, five, ten, or even 20 days, but 30 days in a row. What day do you think they're going to have to reach before the meat becomes loathsome or detestable to them? I don't think the 30th day. I think it's going to be far before that that it becomes repulsive. Now, I don't care what your favorite food is, if you have to eat it for 30 days straight, it is going to become disgusting to you. I spent a considerable amount of time on this sermon pondering this question, and I have realized that I think even popcorn could become repulsive if I, I mean, you're kind of like, well, the fourth, four or five days of popcorn in a row sounds like a dream come true, doesn't it? I'm not alone on that, am I? But you, <laughs> you start getting to like the 10th or 20th day of popcorn every single meal, and, and it's going to become repulsive to you. Now, to be clear, this is like what we looked at a few weeks ago when God let Moses take Aaron with him. It was something that initially looks gracious or even merciful, but was to the people's, to Moses's, and now to Israel's own detriment and why would that be why would that be and the answer is simply because it is not god's will it was not god's will for them to have meat it was god's will for them to have bread so instead of a blessing them it ended up being a curse to them and the application for us is if god lets us have something but it is not his will for us to have it because we can move outside of god's will then it is not going to be a blessing to us it is going to end up being a curse to us just to make it clear so if you remember one of the things i wanted you to see last or a few weeks ago when we looked at moses to interpret it rightly is that it says god became angry with moses god was not pleased by moses's humility god did not say oh moses i'm i'm so um, blessed by your reluctance to go because it's such a reflection of the way you view yourself and in your no there's nothing like that instead god became angry with moses it says he was angry and when god is angry he doesn't bless he disciplines and so right here we see the same thing i want you to notice that god is not happy with israel he is going to be angry starting in verse 31 a wind from the lord sprang up it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground and the people rose all that night and all rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail those who gathered least gathered 10 homers and they spread them out spread them out for themselves all around the camp so they're so excited to have this meat that how long did they accumulate it all day all night and all the next day 
I mean, that is a lot of gathering meat. You think they'd get, you know, tired after the sixth or seventh hour or something, but they keep at all day, all night, and then all the next day. It says the people who gathered the least gathered 10 homers. I know we don't deal in homers, so I'll explain this. One homer is about 2.7 pounds. One homer is 2.7 pounds. Let's do some simple math. If the person who gathered the least gathered 10 homers, how much did that person gather? 27 pounds of meat. People gathered 27 pounds of meat. That is an incredible amount to be bringing back to your tent. Listen to what God said when they gathered the manna. Exodus 16, 16. You shall each take an omer, not a homer, but an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in this tent. So they could take one omer of manna, which is about five and a half pounds. So they just went from five and a half pounds of manna to 27 pounds of meat. Look at verse 33. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hadavah, because there they buried the people who had the craving. Kibroth Hadavah, it means graves of craving. So this is a strong judgment. You've got God striking down the Israelites because of their craving, or you could say they're being destroyed because of their craving or lust or their appetites. And it reminded me of Philippians 3.19, it says, their end is their destruction, their God is their belly. What does that mean when it says their end is their destruction, their God is their belly? It means people are being, when it says their belly, it's a euphemism for their appetite or what they lust after or crave. And it says that what they're lusting after or craving leads to their destruction or their deaths. And this is an incredible example of that. So they didn't even get to finish eating before God started punishing them. And this brings us to part two of lesson one. God might give us what we want later. Lesson two, he might punish us. Or God might give us what we want, but later, lesson two, he might punish us. And by the way, if you're new to joining us and we hear, we, you hear babies crying, it's comfortable for us here. We love to have children with us. We love to see families worshiping together, so don't ever be concerned if a child is making noise. We try to keep the foyer free, if you've never heard this, for, for nursing mothers or the, or the nursery, but we're always glad to have kids around. And like Pastor Nathan said, we've had a lot of babies born, and so then after they're born, where do we want to see them? <laughs> we want to see them here at church, and so please bring your, bring your babies around. It's a blessing for us to see them. So lesson two might punish them, and this can seem confusing, doesn't it? Because in your mind, you're saying, why is God punishing them, or why would he punish us, for something that he allowed them to have? And what's the answer? Because he never wanted them to have it. <laughs> he, that's a simple answer. He never wanted them to have it. Just because we have things or do things does not mean that God wants us to have it or God wants us to do it. God was angry with Israel for eating meat that he gave them, because he never wanted them to have that meat even when he gave it to them. And this is very sobering. It reveals that if we want something and we repeatedly push for it in our lives, then what could happen? There could be that point at which time God allows us to have it. Or perhaps, like with the Israelites, even works for us to have it or provides it for us. And I get this, is, this can be kind of troubling because then you can almost be paralyzed. Well, is this something that God wants me to have or is this not something that God wants me to have? I think this applies to those things that we have been strongly convicted. I mean, I, I don't want anyone to hear this sermon today and then leave and feel like they can never make a decision in their lives again because they're concerned that it might not be God's will and he's going to be angry and he's going to punish us for it. That's not my intention behind this sermon. I'm referring to those things that either God's word has revealed to us to be a compromise or the Holy Spirit has revealed to us through conviction that it is a compromise, that we perhaps don't have this liberty or this is not the decision that God wants us to make in our lives. And when we've received that conviction, when we have received that revelation from God's word, or we have received that conviction from the Holy Spirit to push through that can put us in the place of of the prodigal son getting the inheritance, Moses getting Aaron with him, 
or the Israelites getting meat here, and we can end up being disciplined as a result. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 78, where we get more insight into this. Psalm 78, we'll start around verse 6. This account is written about in two different psalms. Psalm 78, verse 26, recounting this situation in Numbers, or looking back on Israel's time in the wilderness. God caused the east wind, so Psalm, 28, Psalm 78, 26, God caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. So this is the wind that blew the quail into the camp, as we read. Verse 27, and then God rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled, for he gave them, notice this, what they craved. And I think the way this is worded is significant and gives us insight into what took place. Craved means desired. This is what they desired. This is not what God desired for them. Verse 30, before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. And there's an interesting irony when you contrast two of the phrases in these verses. In verse 29, it says, they ate and were filled. And verse 30 says, before they had satisfied their craving. So contrast that. They ate and were filled, and then before they had satisfied their craving. So what, that's interesting, isn't it? This is saying they ate enough to be what? But were never... And I, I have been reflecting on this. This has been such a challenging passage for me. Uh, I began this over a month ago. We had Jeff preaching on a vacation. We had Easter Sunday reflecting on this potential for us to perhaps be full or pursue something and get an amount of it enough to fill us up and to still be unsatisfied in our lives. And I hope it might minister to you as much as it has ministered to me because it describes so well what happens when we get what we want, but it is not what God wants for us. And you can get enough that you can be full. You, you couldn't consume any more of whatever it is you have craved and still be completely unsatisfied. So he gives it to us, but he might remove any satisfaction that we receive from it. And if you take your mind back to the prodigal son and you think about it, I know we haven't finished the parable, he gets the inheritance that he wants, and did it seem like it satisfied him? I would say, what, Jack? This one? Yeah, well said. I would say that it ended up being very detrimental to him and did not leave him feeling satisfied. I thought of it like eating junk food. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but when I used to be super into um, fitness, uh, there were times where I'd sort of, let's just say, fall off the wagon and just throw myself into like all the junk food I could, I could consume, uh, almost to a point of like making myself nauseous because it had been so many weeks since I hadn't eaten anything except, you know, chicken breasts and green beans or something. And so then I'm just devouring all the, whether it's ice cream or candy or whatever it is, and you just eat so much. And how do you end up feeling besides guilty? <laughs> unsatisfied. You're full and you're unsatisfied. And spiritually speaking, getting what we want when it isn't God's word for us or will for us is just like eating, spiritually speaking, a whole bunch of junk food. You're just devouring all this that God doesn't want you to have, and you're left feeling completely unsatisfied. You're full. Sometimes we think certain things will do what for us? Solve our problems. Finally going to make us happy. Leave us satisfied. But if it's not God's will for us, we are going to feel the exact opposite of that. In fact, it can even make our lives worse and we can even look back with regret that we got what we thought we wanted and wish we could go back and not have what we previously craved. Spurgeon said, 
The Lord showed them that he could provide meat for his people, even enough to spare. He showed them that when lust wins its desire, it is disappointed. Consider that there is more real satisfaction in crucifying, crucifying the flesh or mortifying lust than in making provision for the flesh or in fulfilling it. There is more true pleasure in crossing and pinching our flesh than in gratifying it. Were there any true pleasure in sin, hell would not be hell. For the more we sin, the more joy we would have. You cannot satisfy one lust if you would do your utmost and make yourself never so absolute a slave to it. You think if you had your heart's desire, you would be at rest. You make a huge mistake as Israel had. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 106. Look with me at verse 12. While you turn, there's something I've been reflecting on recently in my life is God's commands or God's will being the rail for us or rails if we're trains. I mean, if you think of yourself being a train, you know, just hurtling forward, when are you free as a train? Are you free when you go off the tracks? You're free when those rails guide you. You're free when you are constrained or restrained from where you might go. You are free when you're guided and directed by God's will for your life. You're not free when you go off the tracks and hurtle into that tree or down that hill or into that river. The freedom comes from God's will directing us and guiding us along. Psalm 106, look at verse 12 with me, the same situation being described here. It says, they believed God's words, they sang his praise, verse 13, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for God's counsel. And this is referring, when it says they sang his praise and they forgot his works, this, the works they're referring to is God's deliverance from Israel, what we talked about earlier, the plagues being unleashed, the Red Sea being parted, the water from a rock, the, the manna from heaven. They moved very quickly from what in verse 12 to what in verse 13? They moved very quickly from praising to forgetting. And their forgetting soon led, as we know from Numbers 11, to complaining. They moved very quickly from thankfulness to rebellion. One minute they're praising God and thanking Him for all He's done, and then the next minute they're forgetting, which is then followed by complaining. And the application for us at least for me and perhaps for some of you too, is when I begin to suffer or go without, I'm very quick to forget what God has done for me. I'm very quick to forget God's goodness, just like the Israelites. I start to go through something, and you'd almost think that for the last 40-some years, God hasn't been there for me. You know, I'm going through one difficulty, or I'm lacking one thing in my life, or I find myself struggling in some way, and then suddenly the complaining begins, the thanklessness, the forgetfulness of all God's goodness, up to that point, and I believe I'm just like these verses describe here. It is a considerable temptation for me, like it was for the Israelites and perhaps for you as well. And notice it says, they did not wait for his counsel. And I just want to ask you, when you want something, do you wait for God's counsel? Are you prayerful? Are you patient? You're thinking about something, perhaps whether it's a, a, a major decision, or do you rush ahead? Boyce wrote, is it that way with you? You see God's miracles, but at the first sign of any new opposition, you forget what God has done, and soon you're rebelling against what you suppose to be your hard and painful life. And then when God saves you again, you sing his praises but soon you forget even that deliverance. That is exactly what you and I are like. The NIV has an interesting, and I would say wonderful way of translating this verse. Instead of saying, they did not wait for his counsel, it says, they did not wait for God's plan to unfold. And I like that because I can look back on times in my life and suspect that I had not waited for God's plan to unfold fully. 
We want something. We don't want to wait to see how God's plan will unfold. We just rush ahead. Basically, we're impatient. And it reminds me of the prodigal son, again, because if you take your mind back to him, let me just ask this, was the prodigal son going to receive his inheritance? He was, yes. So what was the real issue? Was the issue him not getting his inheritance? No, the issue was him not being patient and not waiting for his inheritance. And it's very applicable. If we get what we want because we didn't let God's plan unfold or because we were impatient or because we rush ahead of the Lord, using the language of this verse, we don't wait for his counsel or we don't wait for his plan, it doesn't usually go well with us. I cannot think of a time in my life when I have said, you know, I really feel like I rushed ahead of the Lord and it went super well for me. I've never been in a conversation with another Christian who was discussing some blessed season of life, and they say, you know, I think it's because I didn't wait on God that things are going so well for me. I've never heard that. Instead, it's typically, I didn't wait. I was impatient. I rushed ahead. I didn't let God's plan unfold. Look at verse 14. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. And that's referring to Israel wanting me. And then notice this. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. And this is exactly what we're talking about. They got what they wanted, but was it a blessing? No, it was a curse. He gave them meat, but it was accompanied by a disease. They got more meat than they could imagine, but it caused them to waste away. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine eating more than you can imagine while wasting away at the same time? Interestingly, there's a good chance, I don't want to go down that path too long because there's a good chance this isn't speaking physically. This is not talking about them eating a lot and then physically wasting away. This more than likely is spiritual. Other translations say God sent leanness into their, not their body, but their soul. He sent, so we're not talking about wasting away physically, We're talking about wasting away spiritually. More than likely, they were growing physically while they ate, but their soul was wasting away. Satisfied physically, starving spiritually. Now, it would be much better for us to deny those physical cravings and have souls that are fat and happy, right? To deny the flesh, but have souls that grow healthy and strong. Now turn back to Numbers 22. To see the next example. Guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I had to be honest about something that's convicting me. I didn't plan this. Someone confronted me about something. I, at the annual meeting, I said I wouldn't move. And we moved to Vancouver, and someone confronted me about that. And that was a lie, and I want to apologize. I, I'm asking you to forgive me. I said I wouldn't move to Vancouver. I said I wouldn't move, and we moved. And that is a lie. And I'm convicted about that. And so I'm asking you to please forgive me for us having done that. Uh, there wasn't really any way around it. I mean, around the fact that it was a lie. If you say you're not going to do something and then you do it, then, you know, that is a lie. And I'm convicted about that, especially preaching this sermon. And so please forgive me. God has graciously opened a house up for us in, in Woodland that has in-law quarters for my mother. Uh, and so we will be able to move back here on June, June 4th. That was our plan. We didn't plan to stay in, in Vancouver indefinitely. But when this person wrote me and said, hey, you said you weren't going to move, and you moved, that, that is a lie. And so please forgive me. I want, I want, to be, want that clear from my, my conscience. And so with that, I hope I can continue comfortably with this uh, sermon. And if you have any uh, questions about that or anything, please be sure to, to talk to me about that at, at some point. And thank you for the person that confronted me about having said that and then doing something contrary to what, to what I said. I believe the context was that we were entertaining moving in with John Schoenborn. I think that's what it was at the annual meeting. I said, hey, we're talking about moving in with John Schoenborn. The elders discouraged me from it. 
uh, we're not moving, and then we did end up moving. And so that was dishonest, and, and I apologize for that. So uh, Numbers 22 now. Look at verse 2. It says, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And so here's the situation. Balak is the king of Moab, and he's completely terrified because he sees the Israelites plowing through the wilderness, conquering enemies that, interestingly, had conquered the Moabites. So when you have to face someone that has beat up the people that beat you up, you know you're going to lose, right? And so Balak looks with this fear and comes up with a plan. And the plan is in verse 6. He sends to Balaam in verse 6. He says, come now, curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So Balaam, or Balak knows he's not going to be able to defeat Israel militarily because they're stronger than him, or he's not going to be able to defeat them physically. He believes he can defeat them spiritually by having Balaam come and curse them. Balaam really wants the money, and so he's going to do something absurd. He is going to ask God if God would want him to curse God's own people. That would be like you're a parent and someone comes and says, hey, do you want me to mistreat your children for you? And so what do you expect God to say to this? No, you're not going to curse them. I'm not going to have you curse my people because they're blessed. They are my children. So look at verse 12. God says to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse this people for they are blessed. Balaam really wants the money, so he keeps asking. Look at God's shocking response in verse 20. God came to Balaam at night and he said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Now this is a sobering example of what we have been discussing. Is it at all confusing to you or troubling that you have God saying what and then saying what? He says, no, don't go. And then he says, what? Go. I remember reading this early in my Christian life and how confusing I found this to be. But it is a wonderful example of what we're discussing, that if we continue pushing, there could be a point that God says, fine, you can have this. And it can make me wonder, have I done this? Do I get an answer through God's word or the Holy Spirit's conviction, but continue to push until God lets me have it to my own detriment? If you're familiar with the rest of the account, incredibly detrimental to Balaam. Not only might God give us what we want, he might even be angry when we get it. And this brings us to lesson three. God might give us what we want later, but lesson three, he might be angry. God might give us what we want, but later, lesson three, he might be angry. And just so you don't think this is my opinion, look at verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took a stand in his way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. Now one of the obvious difficulties with this account relates to God saying no and then seemingly saying yes. And it gets even more troubling because, do me a favor, look one chapter to the right and Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does God change his mind? How do we reconcile this verse, only a few verses after it looks like God changed his mind, saying he changed his mind? How can we be in Numbers 23 saying God doesn't change his mind and look one chapter to the left at Numbers 22 and see God seem to change his mind? The answer is God didn't change his mind. He never wanted Balaam to go. It was never God's will for Balaam to go, even when he let Balaam go, because God lets us do things that are not his will. 
it was never God's will for him to go even when he went. And so when Balaam went, whose will was Balaam in and whose will was he not in? He was not in God's will. God allowed Balaam to leave his will, leave God's will, and follow his own will to his detriment. And so think about it like this. Balaam knew that he shouldn't curse Israel, but he did so at the first opportunity because he wanted the money. He wanted to disobey God, and he did so as soon as God let him. Why wouldn't that anger God? I mean, I can't imagine God feeling any other way or experiencing anything other than anger based on what Balaam did here. Now, if you're a parent, you know what this is like. Have you ever had your children push you and push you and push you after you've said no until you finally say what? And then when they do it, how do you feel? You're angry because you're watching your children scamper off to to joyfully, happily disobey you. And you can never as a parent look down at your children disobeying you, especially not happily, and feel anything other than anger at what they're doing. And it is the same for God. And so if we push and push and he lets us have it, he is going to be angry about it later, and this is what happened with Balaam. We'll look at a few more examples next week, but we're out of time this morning, and I want to conclude with this. It's important to know that if we push God, he might let us have what we want, even to our detriment. And let's understand there's something else, and I want this to serve as a warning, that can happen every time we insist on our will. And it's something that transpires not outwardly, but inwardly in our hearts. Our hearts get a little what each time? Harder. Less receptive. Less sensitive to God's will. A little easier next time to follow our will versus following God's will. And so I want to encourage all of us, myself included, let's be surrendered to God's will, what he wants and doesn't want for our lives. Let's make sure we don't insist on having what we want, because if we do, we can end up like what? Now we've seen a handful of examples. The prodigal son getting his inheritance, Moses getting Aaron with him, the Israelites getting their meat, or Balaam getting to go with Balak. Whenever we insist on having our will, we take ourselves outside of God's will, and it always ends up being tougher for us. Something happened this this last week. I didn't put this in my notes, but I just wanted to briefly share it with you because I was considering... Um, well, I'll tell you what I always think of when, when this happens to me. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We're, we're staying with these people. There's a ministry called A Candle in the Window where Christians open their homes to you, and we stayed with them for these four nights. And they had, they were really, really wonderful family. They had kids about the same age as ours, and they had these go-karts that my kids just loved um, racing around on. And the, the father was bringing the go-karts back in the garage, and something happened, and he couldn't get it up over the lip of the, of the garage, and so I bent, bent down to help him, and I put my hand right on the exhaust pipe after the kids had been running it around. Uh, it was sizzling hot, <laughs> and so my hand starts blister, blistering uh, right, along, right along my calluses. About the only place I didn't get blisters is where I had calluses. And so this guy, so the gentleman, not knowing how badly I burned myself, he says, hey, be careful, that's hot. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's hot. I know it's hot now. <laughs> so I'm trying to be real cool, you know, and I got my hand behind me like this, and I'm still trying to help him with my good hand and keep my blistered hand behind me, you know, and, and just, and I'm kind of like trying to not look like I'm in excruciating pain or anything. And, and so just wondering, is there some gauze or something I could put on my hand here? And now, what I was going to say was, I don't know if, it's, if this happens with you guys. If you, whenever you burn yourself, do you think of something? I just think of hell. I'm serious. I'm not making a joke. I burn my hand, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, this is really painful. I can't believe hell's worse than this. <laughs> sort of, but all over your body, right? Um, I know it's obviously much worse than some blisters on your hand, but that's, my mind kind of goes to that. Now, I don't know exactly what hell's going to be like, but I know it's called the lake of fire, so there's going to be some way that is excruciating and hot and fiery beyond my imagination. And I, I can kind of joke about burning my hand a little bit, but that's where my mind goes whenever I've, you know, burnt myself and just how bad that's going to be. And the, the reason I, I wanted to just share this with you is 
that's really the extreme way of us insisting on having our will, if you're here today. Because if you have sat in this church for any amount of time, you have heard me preach the gospel numerous times. You have heard me share what Christ has done for you. For you to go to hell, you've insisted on your will here. You have, you have pushed to have your will in, in an unimaginable way and denied what Christ has done for you, and you have chosen the lake of fire. There's no excuse for you if you've sat under my preaching for some amount of time. Now, I can have some regret, plenty of regrets as a pastor. I mean, I shared one of them today, saying I wouldn't move and then moving. But I'm not going to have any regrets associated with where you spend eternity because I have been clear with you about the gospel. I have told you what Christ has done for you. I will have a clear conscience. The choice is yours. You will decide. You're the one who will insist on your will so much so that you will reject what Christ has done for you and choose an eternity that makes blisters on your hand look insignificant. And so I just want to encourage you, if you have any conviction whatsoever in your heart associated with where you're going to spend eternity and what Christ has done for you, please give me, please give me the opportunity to speak to you after service because some blisters on your hands is nothing compared to an eternity separated from Christ. And it would be so unfortunate to think that there would be anyone who sat under the preaching of the gospel of this church for any amount of time and still rejected what Christ did for them. Father, we thank you so much for your son and the judgment that he spares us from. The good news isn't just that we get to go to heaven. The good news is also that we don't have to go to hell, that we don't have to spend eternity in the lake of fire. And you give us little amounts of suffering on this side of heaven that I think can only prefigure in a very small way the, the suffering that accompanies those people who have spent eternity separated from Christ. And I wouldn't want that for any of the people here, Lord. And so I, I would just come to you and ask that you would make it clear in each person's heart if there would be anyone here who is insisting on having their will. It is one thing to insist on having our will uh, on this side of heaven when it doesn't affect our eternity, but it is another thing to insist on our will and push past what Christ has done for us, uh, where you would be forced to cast us alive into the lake of fire for our sins, because we did not allow your son to take the punishment that we deserve, Lord. And so I, I would just come on behalf of anyone here and pray for a very strong conviction for them, Lord, uh, incredibly strong, where it would be undeniable, and that they would recognize that they stand here unsaved outside of Christ, and that you would stir them up, that you would grant them the faith and repentance needed to be saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.